for some several months now, I've been over here at a nursing facility, uh, having to go through physical therapy and stuff like that. And with the Corona or COVID thing locking everything down, it's they've got us really locked down. The only thing that's really made it halfway tolerable for me is binge watching a bunch of A Bomb 79, some AVE, this old Tony, and of course, Essential Craftsman. Welcome to another episode of the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I've got my dad, the Essential Craftsman, here with me. How are you doing? Doing good. Hi, guys. We've got some listener questions we're going to go through, and we'll get right into it. Our first one comes from Joshua Sutton. Hi, Nate. Hi, Scott. My name is Joshua Sutton. I am from Illinois. I am new to the carpentry trade. I've got a lot of questions, so you might hear my voice on here a couple of times. At the moment, my question is, if you are building a structure, and it will be a mobile structure, and the surface you are building it off of is not level, how would you go about ensuring that all of your members are plumb and level, and square to the base, as well as the roof? I'm not exactly sure how to work that out, but any suggestions you can give would be greatly appreciated. Love the work you guys do on the channel. It's really come a long way. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Okay, Josh. So there's there's lots of things that I probably don't know about what you're actually doing, how big the structure is, and when you say mobile, is it going to be on axles? Is this like a a tiny home that's going to be pulled behind a truck, or, or if, is this a... a a feeder for to use on it. I don't know what it is, but in general, if you want something to be plumb, you have to be starting off something that is level. And so if it was me, I would go to whatever extent I had to go to, to establish some sort of a level framework to lay this thing up on and then lower it with jacks down to the ground onto the axles to transport it. I know that in a, in a fabrication shop or something, if the floor is not really level, that they will shim up or crib up or use big steel sawhorses to create a level, perfectly level base for building like big trailers or pieces of rock crushing equipment that have to be transported over distances. And this is cer certainly one of the reasons that floors and fabrication shops are level. So I guess to answer your question, I would use cribbing, which is usually like six by sixes or six by eights. Um, and build some crib piles, throw some I-beams across between the crib piles to establish uh, a plane, a strong supporting planar um, arrangement that you can throw beams and joists on and whatever the floor system consists of and start up off of that. I wouldn't try to build something in, a, in a, an orientation that is not level, expecting that when it is down onto the ground, onto a level surface, that the walls are going to be plumb or that anything's going to be square. I just, I wouldn't try it. I would, I would work as hard as I had to work to start off a level surface. With like a trailer is, can't you just pull off of like the trailer frame, assume the trailer, like on a tiny house on axles, even if the trailer's sitting on a slope, mm -hmm. can you then just like pull off the frame wherever it is and assume, you know, three feet off the frame here is going to be the same as three feet off the frame here or. Yeah. Um, staying parallel to the 
let's, let's, let's say the plane that he's starting with, the deck is not level. Mm-hmm. But you can, you can make it square. I mean, you, if, as long as it's in a plane, you can make it square easy enough. And you can come up a set distance off of that unlevel plane easy enough. But establishing plumb yeah. off of a plane that's not level is like, I mean, in theory, you could do it by use, squaring the walls off of the unlevel bottom diaphragm rather than plumbing. Tedious, time-consuming, and likely to be wrong. So spend the time to figure out a way to start with a level surface. Yeah, that's what I would do. Thanks, Josh. Hey, guys. Love the show. It's Mike calling here from New Zealand, just getting underway with a self-build of our own home. So I've been watching the channel and learning heaps. Just a question around um, the use of battery tools. I notice you guys don't seem to use too many battery tools compared to some of the other YouTubers out there. And just wondering uh, why that is the case. Uh, Thanks, guys. Keep it up. Cheers. Okay. Mike, New Zealand. New Zealand's on my bucket list, man. I would love to see New Zealand. So that's where they filmed The Lord of the Rings, right? Mm -hmm. So... I'm a Tolkien fan, love those movies, especially the first one or two, and I would really like to see those filming locations and and uh, see where Frodo grew up, right? So battery tools, cordless tools. I love cordless drills. I love cordless impact drivers, uh, and I freely and frankly admit that cordless tools have come a long ways to where now they are practical. But number one... I just haven't spent the money to make the investment to replace all of my corded tools with cordless tools because the cord, for instance, on a skill saw, and we'll speak to this on the channel when, when I talk, when I review the cordless skill saw that somebody sent me, if you're working on the ground all the time, a cordless skill saw is terrific. Um, I mean, on, at a bench, if you're working at a bench or just on the ground, it's great. But in real terms, once you're up off the ground, that cord becomes part of the tool for raising and lowering the tool. And I've done it both ways now. I've used a, two different kinds of cordless skill saws on the house. And maybe it's confirmation bias, and I'm just looking for the moments when I wish I had a cord on the darn thing so I could raise it or lower it instead of having to physically climb up and down. But for me, on a skill saw, in a full framing application, don't like it. Love it on drills and drill motors. I'm going to get a hold of some cordless grinders, cordless four-inch grinders. I think they just make a ton of sense. I haven't done it. So I don't think cordless is a solution to every problem. I don't think that the newest tool is always the best tool. But I also am aware that I'm what I'm used to is what I like to use. So... I great question, Mike. I don't have all the cordless tools in the world, and if I did, I would probably use them more. But I think that's the answer because you buy a tool and it works great. You use it. Going out and blowing a hundred bucks on a battery version doesn't maybe make sense for you. Maybe for somebody just getting their first sawzall, they could do that. But I don't know. Once you got a tool that works, it's true. So, and I also see some issues in Oregon around cordless tools and charging batteries in the rain. If you're under a roof, again, in a shop at a bench where you can charge your batteries and keep them dry, that's great. But I mean, I mean, there are just some things, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm, I'm, I see this now, a cordless skill saw is really nice for setting concrete forms. You know, that cord's not always hung up on the stakes and 
So, I mean, ideally, the right tool for the job is the right tool for the job. Our next question came from Curtis Martin, and the audio is a little fuzzy, and he's asking about battery saws also, when we're going to do that review, which we just touched on. But the answer is probably fairly soon. I don't know, within a few months. Uh, well, I don't know. I, maybe you're still using it, but one I, of these days. <laughs> I, I'm probably going to use it inside the house a little more than yeah. I was using it framing. Yeah. So there, it'll be a while before I, I'm ready to talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great saw. But but let me just say this. I got a chance to use uh, the guys that helped us with the siding had a cordless Makita. And so I used that. Uh, my friend Steve let me use a cordless Makita a year ago, and now I've used yeah. a cordless skill. So there's an interesting comparison there. Yeah. Thanks for the uh, comment and the note, Curtis. He also spent time in Farmington. We had mentioned that regarding the oil field. So hopefully we'll learn more about that one of these days. Hey, guys. I just started my own shop, and I'm hoping to make a YouTube channel based off of my exploits in fabrication and prototyping. I was wondering if you had any advice on how to plan your content strategy. Uh, you guys have a very well put together online presence, and I think part of that is picking the right projects and covering them effectively and releasing videos on a good schedule. And I was wondering if you had any advice on the strategy of how you how you make this big machine that you've built work smoothly. Uh, and another thing that I was curious about, during your last uh, podcast on EC2, you had a brief discussion about injuries. And as a former EMT, that got me thinking, what's in your first aid kit? What do you guys have in the shop or in your cars that you carry everywhere just in case? Uh, okay, thanks for your time. Okay, so just starting his own fabrication shop and wants to coordinate a YouTube channel with that. Um, so first piece of advice that I've got is it is, it is hard to produce work and produce videos. It's way harder than I thought. And that RR builder, what's it? That's RR builders, right? The guy that built Jimmy Duresta's shop. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but yes, that's the guy. So one of the things I admire about that guy is it looks like he's continuing to run his building business and his contracting business, taking apparently the same sort of jobs he's always taken for clients while he builds a YouTube channel. And I'm not sure how, how you would do that. I had to I had to step back from my actual contracting business. I mean, clearly we're building a house, but working for other people and doing a YouTube channel would be hard. Yeah. It would it compromises it compromises your ability to produce the work on the schedule. So be aware of that. At least the way we do it. That's yeah. that's the other thing. You know, every channel that we know of and ourselves included kind of has to figure out what works for them and their workflow. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Just sort of start testing, make some videos, see what see what works. If you're lucky like we were, we kind of got an audience kind of quickly, you know, maybe a thousand people who were watching our videos and that gave really helpful feedback and, and kind of helped steer the content strategy because yeah. we were able to have an idea and, and feedback on what, you know, what was interesting and what's not. So I don't know. It's a challenging thing, but... Um, yeah, I don't so, know. <laughs> so a couple things. Um, what is it? 80% of businesses fail in the first five years? Something like that. So I don't know what the percentages of new businesses that are also trying to build a YouTube channel would be that would fail in the first five years. So be aware of that. It's, gonna, it's going to pull some of your vitality away from your business trying to create a YouTube business. So just count the cost. Um, the other thing, what was I think? Oh, 
one of the things that made it possible for us to gain viewership was the fact that I wasn't trying to make the videos because as the guy doing the work, I I would want to go too far into the weeds on too many of the actual production details to keep it entertaining. And Nate's perspective, he he's a couple steps back from that, looking at it through the through the uh, lens that is never to be forgotten, and that is that it really is entertainment first. And so we're able to kind of negotiate the compromise between instruction and entertaining. And if you're making your own videos about the work that you're doing, you can't help being absorbed by how hard it was to figure out that jig, about how tricky it was to get that thing centered up, about how beautiful that weld is and what you had to do to make it happen. And so the temptation is going to be to go too far into the woods. Yeah, too far into the weeds, he said, in the technical details and not be able to keep it interesting to a wide cross-section of people. So think of that, too. Yeah, speaking of too far into the weeds, I think that's where we find ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> like you said. <laughs> uh, maybe last thing, though. Making videos is fun, and I have a feeling, Will, what you're what you're kind of saying is you want to, you're going to fabricate and you want to film it and you should, and it is fun. And it's, it's very like, it's a fun hobby separate from if it's a long-term business, the filming and videos. So I say, go for it, put them up there, get some feedback and you'll know, you'll know where to go from there. All right. Next question. Hey, Scott and Nate. My name is Aaron from Denver, Colorado. A uh, long time watcher of the series. I appreciate the high quality craftsmanship as well as the good YouTube videos. Uh, my question has to do with the formula of a YouTube video. Uh, Nate, I guess this would be more in your ballpark, but can you kind of talk about um, how you use the footage, uh, how you break down the videos in terms of B-roll uh, narration and maybe the software you use and uh, why you use it? Thanks a lot, guys. Okay. Um <clears throat> There's definitely no formula, unfortunately. I wish there was, but the way it works for us usually is we kind of film as much as we possibly can on the given topic or project. And then in the editing and kind of after we can see what we have to work with, the the video kind of sometimes reveals itself. Maybe it's almost like carving or something. Once you kind of dig in, you can kind of it'll start to take shape. And so at this point in my life, I'm kind of filming everything everywhere I go. I usually have a GoPro and whether it's the kids or the garden, if you watch that video, I've kind of am always thinking of what might be interesting B-roll or weather events. If there's a lot of neat clouds blowing by my house, I'll put up a camera and get some shots of those. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like a fishing net and casting a really wide net, capturing as much as we can. And then usually by the time we sit down and look at the footage and think about what the best story or video is, it's, it's a little more obvious at that point. So I don't know if that's helpful, but something that, that, um, that Nate has insisted on that I didn't understand too well until I started watching a few other YouTube videos after having watched ours that he made is don't get in front of the camera and start your video by telling the people what you're going to tell them. Just tell yeah. them in the context of what you're doing. Don't 
don't give them an overview of what they can expect from your video. Just start the meat of your video is one thing that I think was yeah, really a good insight. That's a good point. And that, you know, when I think about how the videos go together, that might be one of the formula things. Like you can you can explain things, you can show things, you can show something in B-roll while you're talking about something else and music's playing. So there's lots of different ways where one piece of information can be delivered to the to the viewer. And I'm careful, I try to be careful to not overdo it and and make that same point about one thing like 18 different ways by talking about it and you know what I mean? It's so it kind of keeps things moving. If if something was shown really nicely with B-roll, very, very easily understandable, then then usually we won't try to make a big voiceover segment explaining this obvious thing because we assume the viewers are intelligent enough to kind of catch it. And I think that general mindset, like you said, of not not making things redundant and over explaining makes the videos a little more watchable. So that may be one of the mm-hmm. formulas. We're, we're just kind of trying to, if it, if it was editing a paper or editing a book, we're just trying to take out as much as we can to leave the real best parts of the of the story or the lesson or the trick or whatever there and cut out everything that's not really helpful. It, there's a lot of things to watch on YouTube and and we're, we do that because otherwise I think people can click away and and so yeah it t- worked. and it took us a couple of years to figure out how useful voiceover is yeah you know it w- for two years we, yeah. we were only thinking in terms of recording in the shop on the job miking me up speaking to the camera and then I think it was in conjunction with that blacksmith course yeah. that we made yeah we figured out wow voiceover is a, just a really useful way to go back and use footage that where the footage was good but there was no explanation going on so that's a, that's a trick that you've that you've really kind of yeah you utilized. can be so surgical with voiceover in a way that's hard with the camera but with voiceover you can just really say we need this exact point to be made at this exact moment in the b-roll and it's just really helpful and at this point the audio of voiceover in your in your office sounds really nice and it works really well for us so what it does it, it makes a ton of this b-roll that you're getting useful yeah that's otherwise it. it's just hobby photography right yeah. that nobody ever look at but voiceover yeah. makes it useful yeah and now i'll i i'm i'm pretty organized at this point with our archives of video footage and i go back in it all the time and find videos that i kind of know we shot that i think oh man he's we're talking about this i i know i've got this shot somewhere from when something happened at the time i had no idea what it might have been useful for but now there's a perfect spot for it some voiceover focuses it to the video at hand so so it's sort of a video scrap pile right <laughs> yeah. like out behind the shop uh, software i use adobe premiere i think it's the industry standard or at least one of like the big couple and when you pay for premiere you also get access to photoshop illustrator like 15 other programs that i don't use but i figured if i i always knew that was like the the top tier of video and media creation software and so i kind of just force myself to get familiar with it. Somebody so. was just telling you about a capacity inside Adobe that yeah, sounded interesting. Oh, I know. It was was it Phil? Who was t- No, it was uh Dean Vincent. Dean Vincent was telling you, yeah. Yeah, there's some some kind of um file organization software that I, I don't use, but I hopefully I will someday. And I by being an Adobe Premiere user, I, I kind of already have access to all their other tools. So it's pretty nice. All right, thanks, Aaron. Hi, Scott and Nate. 
I was wondering if you could say a few words about Carhartt workwear, as you seem to always be wearing them in your videos. Over here in England, they're not a big workwear brand. They're more known for clothes that people wear to festivals and raves. Thanks. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Carhartt is undergoing the same transformation that Levi's underwent 30 years ago, at least in my opinion, right? Levi's were work pants for a long time, and they gradually became more expensive and more expensive, and then somehow they shifted and became cool, right? They, pro yeah, probably this exact way because people yeah. identify them, they see them there, and so... Yep, yeah. yep. And as soon as Levi's became cool, they they their fabric lightened up a little bit, and it, I wouldn't spend... I don't care what a pair of Levi's cost now. I just wouldn't spend them for work because they're just not the same as they were when I was back in the day, right? Thankfully. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, thankfully. <laughs> sure. I mean, you got to support something, <laughs> right? So Carhartt. Carhartt and the double front lager dungarees that I've been wearing have become sort of a canary in the mine shaft for me in that I think I truly now am a dinosaur. 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 Yeah. Obsolete. Um, has been because one of the biggest manufacturers of workwear in the United States no longer manufactures the workwear that I depend on. So what the heck? You know, I don't know if it's because logging is no longer um, politically correct. I don't know. I don't know why, but Carhartt no longer makes the pants that I have to have to work in. Because there's no demand. There's no demand. I guess. I, I think they see a style of workwear for the next generation as being their market. Well, they see it like in their numbers and books there because I I don't like to wear big heavy pants like that and there's other work pants that are uh, more appealing to me and probably others in my generation. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, probably. Yeah. And but and there just aren't that many loggers. I mean yeah. logging has been mechanized to the point that you don't have crowds of guys on the ground thrashing through the brush and the berries and having to have their legs protected. Mm -hmm. And for those that persist in that there's a couple other brands prison blues key and probably two or three others roundhouse something like that perhaps yeah perhaps but i'm gonna have to make the switch and it it saddens me i mean carhartt is becoming style focused and their prices are relatively speaking going up and they still make great clothes i think this is a carhartt shirt yeah carhartt shirt great shirt but I think it's great. This is sounding a little critical from you, like they're doing something wrong. But I think it's, I don't know about great, but it's companies, it's not, it's hard for companies to stay in business for hundreds of years yeah. without kind of changing and yeah. and moving. And I'm pretty sure Carhartt's like a family owned company, right? I don't think it's a... I don't know about that. Oh, I don't, I don't know if it's a big publicly traded thing or not. I should, we should find that out. But I don't know. Interesting to hear that it's worn it only worn to raves and festivals in england that's really surprising it is and, <laughs> and so it, i mean it speaks to the success of carhartt's new emphasis yeah right? workwear that's worn to parties well but again I don't, I don't think that's the order because for example ali mentioned my wife that this was maybe six months ago that carhartt beanies which they made for ever you know are really popular on instagram and among fashion ladies and and it's not some like m mommy version of a lightweight stylish beanie it's like no 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 
a Carhartt beanie is a, is a wow. style item. And so wow. it's like the, if, if styles have adopted and taken that, I mean, so you know what this means, right? You you're not going to wear Carhartt anymore. I'm done with Carhartt, baby. See you, I'm Carhartt. Not. I'll stand up for him. Sorry. All right. Thanks, Robbie. Hi, my name is Joseph, and I'm an apprentice carpenter with over a year of experience in carpentry. Still green, but getting there. <laughs> I've been a bit of a mouthful of question for you, but I hope you're fine with it. So how was your first few years of carpentry when you're new to it? And how often do you work with apprentice and how was your experience and what trait do you, what traits do you look for when you're working with them? And lastly, what is your, what is your thought of the decline of skilled laborers and tradesmen in this generation? Thank you for your wisdom and inspiring young people like me. Keep up the good work. Hmm. Well, thank you, Joseph. Uh, First of all, it's kind of hard to remember that far back. And there, there was nothing formal about any apprenticeship. I just went to work and, uh, and got yelled at some and worked with a couple guys that couldn't communicate very well but knew quite a bit. Um, early on, I went to work for a general contractor, a young general contractor up in Washington State, and I was just kind of going around doing odds and ends on various houses that he was building scattered over, you know, between two or three towns. So I drove around a lot and I would clean things up and I would help whatever crew was working there. And I was able to begin to see a lot of things and ask a lot of people questions. That's really helpful. Asking questions was super helpful. And then not long after that, I thought that I knew enough that I should just go into business, which was a pretty naive perspective. But I did. I got a contractor's license and I took a few small jobs just about the time the economy tanked here. But the act of taking a few small jobs under my own flag was helpful. Um, there was one guy, Neil Hart, owned the Dixonville store, and he was a retired carpenter. And I would go into Neil in his little store and say, Neil, Show me how to tell me how to cut rafters, and he would sketch things out and explain how the square. He got a square out and showed me how the tables worked. Okay, great, great. And then uh, you know the next, I'd go out, Neil. How do I cut a set of stairs? And okay, here's the square, and he would draw it out and maybe bring a board in, lay it on his counter, and we would. Okay, great, thanks. So I guess that would be the first thing is find someone that you can ask questions of, and I guess you just did that, didn't you? So, so you get that. That's really important. Um, as far as looking for traits in an apprentice, ideally, you want somebody who will listen very carefully to what you're telling them, ask you a couple of questions back to make sure they've got it, and then once they're into it a little bit, maybe come over and say, hey, will you come check this out, make sure I'm doing this right? So that's one very valuable thing. You want somebody who never makes the mistake of when you're halfway through explaining something to him, you never hear him hear him. Or her say, oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You don't want somebody who wants to cut off your description when you get to the parts that they already know in order to impress you with what they know. You want somebody who's hanging on every word. And you also want somebody that when you give them a really mundane task, if they've got to clean out a ditch, if they've got to crumb out some footings, if they've got to, if they've got to move a couple units of plywood from 
the front of the job up onto the deck, they run back to the stack. You want somebody who will trot back to the stack because that shows that they're really interested in producing some work, even if it's just mindless and repetitive. You want somebody that's not still sitting on his butt when break time's over. You want a young guy that's one of the first guys to stand up at the end of the break. And you want somebody that can figure something out, that has some initiative and is is willing to is willing to start the next task even if they don't know exactly what they should be doing they're going to look around and try to keep themselves occupied so some of those things are mutually exclusive right i mean there's a there's a tension between somebody that's willing to start the next task and somebody who will come back over to you and say hey are you will you make sure i'm doing this right so but those in you want somebody on time you do not want somebody that's 10 minutes late ever you just don't want them so you look for that and so that's a pretty good list. But Joseph, I appreciate the question, and it sounds to me like you're probably one of those guys. Hello, Central Craftsman. My name is Michael, and I'm from Ireland. I'm 17 years of age, and I've just finished high school. I'm looking to get into a trade, and I'm thinking of heavily of doing carpentry because I love it, and I love the idea of building things out of wood in my hands. But everyone I ask and everyone tells me that I should go down the route of plumbing or electrical because of the money so much better and because there's less hardship. Do you believe that it, the money and the hardship weighs up more to your love for a specific craft or not? Thanks in advance. Keep up the good work. Love the content. Avoid the hardship. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, first of all, you're 17. Um, at a boy for wanting to go to work. Okay. That's perfect. The fact that you want to go to work and you're thinking about what you want to do sets you apart from a lot of your competition. So that's a huge advantage. It's interesting though, isn't it? That I think I heard you say that everybody you ask says avoid the hardship. That's because hardship for a young man is a challenge and hardship for an old man is crippling. And sooner or later, if you're lucky, you will be an old man. Uh, but you, but it's hard to it's hard to get around the fact that if you love something you want to do it and you love the idea of something you're compelled by it it's it's hard to it's hard to ignore that but i think if i were you i would learn formally to be an electrician i i would i would dive into whatever program or whatever trade school or whatever apprenticeship is available to you for electrical work and then learn to carpenter on the side find another find another car contractor that you know and say hey i really love to work with wood in fact i love the idea of working with wood can i help you on the weekends can i help you after work can i help you on my vacation can i help you when you have some downtime i just want to get my hands in the wood and then you've got both, right? You're learning a trade that will be easier on your body and will compensate you better for your time and will have fewer fewer days off because of weather and will not abuse your joints so badly that you're living with pain and ibuprofen by the time you're 45. So that's that, I think that's what I would do. If I was your dad, I would say, Mike, be, learn to be an electrician and start learning to work wood any way you can, because you certainly can if you want to, and then you'll still be able to build your own things, and you'll be able to wire them, and you'll have a very valuable skill set. What do you think, Nate? Uh, that's what I would do, too. I mean, 
if you're if <laughs> if in Ireland it's better money and less hardship to be a plumber or an electrician, to me that's I would do that because you don't want hardship and money problems your whole life. Amen. And you can, like you said, you can you can build your own house with your own hands and do carpentry work with your friends and family and maybe partner someday to do more of it. But I, I would I would orient myself completely towards less hardship and more money as as a long term life strategy. Yep. You know, for your own family and your own personal sake. Um, you know, with a big picture view. So, and you're only 17, man. It, seven or eight years from now, you could easily be what in the United States would be known as a master or journeyman for sure, um, yeah. electrician. By the time you're 23, you can be an electrician. And when you're 23, if you're an electrician, you can certainly go get a carpenter job yeah. and learn to be a carpenter. So now by the time you're 27 or 28, you've got both these things. Yeah. Holy smokes, what a valuable man you are then. So I would start with what Nate just yeah. did. Learn, nail the thing down that will be greatest value over time, and then shut it off, use it for side work, and and nail down the next trade. What's wrong yeah. with that? And that's that's a generally good, or at least that's generally a good approach, is learn as many different skills as you can, stack them up, because maybe 20 years from now, you're going to be one of the few guys in Ireland who can yeah. do electrical work, who can who understands carpentry, and maybe you learned like, steel stud framing along the way yeah. or something mm -hmm. and some somebody comes along with this problem and you're you're gonna like have you know so you you want to learn a lot of different things but yeah i would prioritize the you know plumbing or electric whatever is gonna put money in your pocket and and pay the bills um first because yep. life can be pretty hard when when you got hardship in that way all right thanks for the question good question what's up guys my name's woody i'm from north carolina Huge fan, love the podcast, and I love the YouTube channel. I look forward to everything you put out. Thank you. I had a question for your dad, Nate. I apologize in advance. I don't know his name. I, I saw, I'm sorry. Uh, but anyway, I, I work as a carpenter. Uh, I've been in the trades for about 10 years, and I've learned some skills along the way. I feel like I'm, very, I'm, I'm real passionate about my job. I love I love what I do, and so I care, and like I, I, I feel like I've gotten a lot of praise for you know the work I've done. But when I work with old guys, old timers, it just seems like sometimes your work is inadequate, or you you know your methods aren't aren't good, and their way mm -hmm. it's their way or the highway. And it's just sometimes it's difficult to work with people like that, and. On one hand, I respect them, and I, 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 you know, for how long they've stuck it out, it's hard work. I mean, they've had 40 years, sometimes more experience than, than me. I've had 10. But it's still kind of hard to work with someone like that that's a little short-tempered or rough around the edges. And they, some of them want to give you some information, some of them don't. And how do you, how do you go about that? Uh-oh. Got, got cut off there, but I think okay. uh, we, you can probably have something to say on that. Go ahead. Yeah. So great question, Woody. Um, figuring out how to learn from people who don't really know how to teach is a, is a life skill in and of itself, right? I mean, there are people who, who are lousy teachers either because they don't know anything or they can't communicate it or their personality gets in the way. So that's what you got to figure out is how to identify the difference between those two t those types. 
the people you can't learn from because they don't really know anything, well, you just be polite and you humor them and you do your job and you don't sweat it. And the people that can't communicate, you hang with them to learn the worthwhile stuff that they do know. I mean, you learn to do that. You learn to just bite your tongue and say, well, this guy's kind of a whatever he is, right? But I'm going to learn something from him anyhow. And then occasionally you'll find that person who can communicate and who knows something, and that's a gold mine. But don't waste your time with the guys who who you know and your heart of hearts really don't know anything. I mean, just just put some distance there. I worked with one guy. Uh, I was young on a big job for the responsibility that, that I had, and they sent a guy out from the hall who had a lot more time on the trade than I did. And right away, he let me know that he'd been doing this for 20 years. And by the end of this, about the third day, no, he hadn't been doing this for 20 years. He'd done it for two years and then repeated that nine more times. He just wasn't interested in learning anything new anywhere. And, and so you identify those guys and don't worry about their opinion. And you, so, so the stereotype of the rough old drill sergeant, you know, who says everything at a high volume and calls you names and stuff, that's not as prevalent as it used to be in the industry, but there are guys like that still out there. And you just decide how much you're willing to humor in order to learn and how much you can't put up with because of your own personal issues and just work your way forward. But the main thing is don't shut off an information source because they happen to be a jerk. Yeah. 10 years is a long time as a carpenter. He, I mean, what he knows. He says in the trades. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and secondly, there are definitely people, just to reiterate, who might be 40 years into the trades, but... They only learn for the first five yep. and then they've been doing the same thing, same tool, same everything for 35. And just because that individual might be older doesn't always mean that, you know, Yeah, I hate, to, right. I hate to like say that, but in some, I mean, there, there's such thing as a codgery old That's right. guy who's also just, who's also might be doing it like not right at that point anymore. You know hey, what I mean? Hey, morons get old too, right? Yeah. I mean, and uh, yeah. And there are people who just won't switch to cordless tools because it's all they know. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, it's redundant. <laughs> Scott, Dave again down here in Grants Pass. This is the answer to your question on your gardening video. Don't continuously add the, the, uh, the mulch, all right? Think of the dirt as your body and think of the mulch as vitamins, all right? Uh, nutrients, things like that, all right? You add too much after a while, you know, it just doesn't do you any good. You just want to supplement the nutrients that your dirt does not have with the mulch, all right? So put it on for a year, go another year, then do it the next year, all right? Also, maybe do a soil test. It'll probably help you there. All right? Uh, that should, oh, and also, Take a look on the internet. Look up uh, crop rotation. See if that helps you any at all. All right. You guys have yourself a good one out there. And uh, as always, keep up the good work. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <clears throat> um, maybe to wrap this up, he brought up the garden. We just put out this video about your garden. And I think we can tie a few of these things together because I'm thinking back to the question about content strategy and and we talked also about 
videos in another spot in this discussion. And then we talked about Carhartt and how they're kind of making and popular in England for rave and party wear. We talked about these changes that these brands go through and 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 he's he I just feel like he's reminded me that even with essential craftsmen now this garden video and we mentioned that we gardening is not our thing but i mean i don't know what to say sometimes you got to like try new things that's what that garden video was it, i think people enjoyed it and it certainly is a nice garden but i don't know that kind of that hits all of those we're trying new things also we are um testing videos and and you know i i think we'll probably maybe do a little more gardening type of content here and there because i it was nice to do something different to be honest that i kind of enjoyed just talking about something different and and as it turns out i'm not surprised but there's decent amount of expertise among the audience on this so that's a takeaway from me you know we fairly recently did that video about that pressure vessel and my my pressure system in the shop and then this garden video just absolutely confirms what I have long suspected that there's just this huge database out there of of people that are watching our channel that really know some stuff, you know, at, at deeper and deeper and deeper levels. And it, it feels like a luxury to me to be tapped into my own personal encyclopedia. I mean, it's better than ask Google because, (laughs) because it's just like real world experience that people are bringing. And yeah. And I have, I have a feeling only a very, very small sliver of people actually leave comments and contribute in that way. I don't on when I'm watching YouTube. And so it's probably like a tip of the iceberg thing. In other words, if there's some really bright people showing up in the comments, there's probably some really freak show bright people who are paying attention. And in fact, we've we've received emails from people who who like Like, that are kind of like, listen, here's what you need to know. And yeah, there's there's a real, uh, it's a real neat, you know, group. It, it, it's a, it's an unbelievably neat group. And and I don't know if there will ever be a time when we or anybody else needs or is able to really fully utilize the, the knowledge base that's just percolating here in this, in this group of people that are, that are watching this channel. But, you know, kind of hearkening back to when, when Nick Peltier and Evelyn had that overwhelming problem and the response of the channel then in that one particular way that that young that family needing help i don't know but it feels to me like it it puts a resource in our hands of information and knowledge and and uh i don't know we'll see if there comes a time when it's actually important but for now it's a help yeah you know it's not just essential craftsmen either yeah. and this has been on the internet for a long time these forums and collections of people and niche hobbies really really solving and helping each other on these complex technical issues and whatever topic they're in but even comments on sections on youtube are like this garden video has all of a sudden brought all this like really helpful gardening information you think about how much trial and error humanity had to has had to do even just like a few years ago we'd be like trying oh this doesn't work that doesn't work and now how much time and money is saved by just getting like the the actual solution to the thing without having to test all these things i mean 20 years ago you might have just tested adding a bucket full of sand or not or keep you know just all this test and it could have resulted in several years of wrecked gardens that's right you know in fact didn't that happen it does happen well didn't that happen to you or si or something so this is the confusing thing yeah three years ago i took or two three 
a big old trailer load. So I loved my leaf mulch. And so I took a load up there that wasn't very decomposed and dumped it out and he put it on his garden. And for whatever combination of reasons, that year his garden failed. Like like he couldn't make anything grow except the garlic. Wow. And so he it, he abandoned that site and moved up and put some raised box gardens up by his house. And he's not asking me for any more leaf mulch, I can tell you that. Wow. And I'm not sure that it's, I don't know. You know, people have commented, you know, you don't know what those trees have been sprayed with. There may have been some herbicide sprayed on some of those leaves. Yeah. I don't know if there was some of that in what I took, Cy, but that's just to what you're speaking of. The trial and error necessarily includes hmm. error. Whatever. So what happened? Is he still abandoned? That, that garden that, site that, is that, still that gone? That garden site has a little fence around it, and the cows walk in and out and graze on the weeds, and that's it. Everybody commented, like, get the soil tested. How, how do you actually test soil? Where do you take it? I know I get you just like the, take a bucket. But the what? county extension office down at the courthouse, OSU, Oregon State University has a county extension office there. And I have flirted with huh. doing that and haven't done it. But I'm going to do it now, boys. I'm going to do it now and see what's really going on. Wow. And I'll be careful not to just draw out of the mulch on the top, but to get down in there where the roots are. And But then that's, well, I guess that's where the weed, that's where the roots are going. So that, yeah, that, that is what you test. That, yeah. The, the top dressing I put on is mostly for weed suppression. Yeah. Bam, it just kills those weeds and keeps the moisture in. But hmm. I really appreciate the information. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. If you have questions, put them on our comments on YouTube. Uh, we appreciate you chiming in. You can send questions to us in this way on our website at essentialcraftsman.com slash podcast. And we will uh, catch you next time. See ya. See ya.